0: So Matthew 27 at 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani? That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran up and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine And put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said truly this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, we have just sung uh, one of the wonderful promises of God. Uh, Psalm 23, we've been singing a great promise that says this, For you are with me, for you are with me. And it's a wonderful song. It's a beautiful song and uh, very sort of sentimental words that can make us feel uh, very joyful when we believe them. But I wonder to what degree we actually do believe them. I guess we quite often believe them when we're singing with brothers and sisters in Christ on a Sunday morning. But through the week, is it our natural belief that God is with us, that we are with him, that we're with him in his presence, that we have access to him? It's not just Psalm 23 that promises that is throughout the Bible. Here are a few others. Uh, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, heavy, laden, and I will give you rest. We're in his presence and we're encouraged to be relationally in his presence. Come to me, he says. Again, at the end of Matthew's gospel we'll see in a few weeks time. And behold, I am with you always, says Jesus. He's with us. And again, another uh, welcome from Jesus earlier in his ministry. He says this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But it's not just a New Testament promise either. It's, it's from the Old Testament as well. It's a promise from God to his people. Uh, listen to what God, uh, listen to what Moses says about God in Deuteronomy. It is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So amazing promises throughout the Bible in various contexts, all about how God will always be with his people and all about how his God's people can come to him at any time in any circumstances and never will be driven away. And he will never leave us. And I don't think these promises are new to us. You don't have to be a Christian too long to come across these sorts of promises quite frequently. I guess the challenge for all of us is, do we believe these promises? And I mean, do we believe these promises not just in a sort of a sense, is this true or false, but in our hearts? Do we really believe that we can come to God at any time, no matter what? Because I reckon we probably struggle. If you're like me, you probably struggle to believe these promises. You sort of know they're true here, but you struggle to believe they're true here. Uh, We don't really believe that God will never leave us. Well, Maybe I could do some things which would mean that he would leave me. We don't really believe that we're always welcome to come to him. Most of the time when we're sort of going, all right, but some of the stuff we do. Can we come to him then? I'm not so sure. And the reason we don't believe that we can always come into God's presence, we're always welcome to come to him, is because we don't actually deserve it. We don't deserve to come into God's presence. Often we feel uh, like we've done all sorts that is horrific, as we confessed earlier on. And we have done those things. It's not an imaginary confession. It's a true confession. When we confess, we're, we're admitting what we really do, what we're really like. And so we struggle to believe that we are welcome to come into God's presence at any time. Well, my aim this morning is to convince you Uh, Well, sorry, my my first aim is not to convince you that you deserve to come into God's presence. I don't want anyone here to think that we deserve to come into God's presence. Because, first, it's not true. But the danger is if we think it's because we deserve to come into God's presence, well, then when there are times when we realize that we don't deserve it, then suddenly we think it's all on the basis of our behavior and our performance, and we won't come to God when we should. But secondly, my aim this morning is to prove to you it's to prove to you that God has guaranteed that you can come into his presence at any time, no matter what. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how, we, how you feel, no matter what circumstances you're in, you can come to God at any time, and he wants you to come with his arms wide open. That's my aim. You can be the judge whether or not I succeed it. And uh, the, the way I want to show this to you is, is by looking at the text of Scripture Uh, we have just read and i really want to see just two things from this passage well two things then two sub things within them but um basically what happens to jesus and what happens to us that's what this passage is about what happens to jesus and what happens to us on the cross and start off what happens to jesus and two things within that so what happens to jesus jesus gets forsaken and jesus gets death they're the two things that we can see let's start by looking at, at jesus gets forsaken So we've seen already uh, in the passage here last week, Jesus getting nailed to the cross. He gets abandoned by everyone. He gets mocked by everyone. He gets laughed at by everyone. What a loser. This is the king of the Jews. What a loser. A king would never go through this. But now we see that the hostility towards Jesus is not just from the surrounding crowds. It's from God himself. Look with me at verse 45. It's the sixth hour, which are timings that, uh, well, the the sixth hours are starting from right at the very morning when it gets light. So the sixth hour is midday. It's around midday when the sun would be at its brightest, highest in the sky. What happens at the sixth hour? There is darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Now, darkness in the Bible is a sign, uh, or darkness in the daytime is a sign of God's wrath uh, God's anger. So, uh, I guess most clearly we see it uh, in the story when God is rescuing the Israelites from Egypt. And Pharaoh says, "I won't let you. I won't let your people go." So God brings His wrath upon Egypt, and there is darkness over the Egyptians. But the Israelites, who are still living in that land, they find a pocket of light where God's blessing is still upon them. But darkness is God's wrath upon uh, upon His enemies. We see that picture again, you can see it in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, you could see it in Amos. It's all over. And God is angry, in one sense, because of the people's rejection of his son. There is a huge rejection uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ here. And that is one of the reasons uh, why uh, God is angry. Uh, and we see uh, what's going on in verse 47 to 49, what the soldiers are doing, again mocking Jesus, uh, rejecting Him and laughing that Elijah might come down and rescue him. What a fool. What an idiot. But that's not the main thing that's going on here, because if we look more closely, the focus isn't really on the surrounding crowds. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see from Jesus' words that God's anger is at the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he hangs on the cross. That's what his words say. Did you see? Eli, Eli, Labba Sabatani. So it's the Aramaic, the words, that, the very personal words that Jesus would have said directly to God. And we get the translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a personal address of Jesus to God. And on the cross, we start to see what happened to Jesus. We start to see the mechanics, Jesus, a slightly crass word, but the mechanics of why it is we can approach God. But what does this forsakenness mean? Well, God gave his son up to the worst torment that any human being has ever experienced in the history of the world. That's what uh, being forsaken is. It's, the cross is, in one sense, the cruelest uh, physical torture the Romans could think of. It's the most humiliating death that the Romans uh, could think of for a person to suffer. But by far in a way the worst thing that Jesus suffers on the cross is his being forsaken by God now I guess most of us are probably thinking at one point yeah I sort of with you so far but uh, what does it actually mean when Jesus says uh, I'm being forsaken by God or even more confusingly well Jesus is God so can God forsake God well, what is going on here And there's the sense in which this is a question that theologians over the past have wrestled with uh, quite a lot. And I think often got it wrong. And my hope is not to get it wrong this morning. I've done quite a lot of thinking on it. Um, But it's really key for us to understand, because once we understand it, I think it will just give us huge confidence, huge confidence to enter into God's presence. And I think we can say more than just it's a mystery. So let's start by what's not going on here. It's not that God stops loving Jesus. That's not going on here. And we know this uh, because here Jesus is obeying the will of the Father. Jesus goes to the cross because the Father wants him to go to the cross. This is what Jesus says in John's Gospel. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. And in that respect, the cross is the epitome of Jesus' actions that please God so we can't say on the cross God stops loving Jesus here's the second thing that we can't say we can't say on the cross uh, that the Trinity God Father Son and Holy Spirit was ruptured so uh, you've got Father Son and Holy Spirit and now we've got the Father and the Spirit over here and uh, the Son has split here like a third of the pie chart is over there that's not what's going on here uh, at all Uh, God remained one as Father, Son and Holy Spirit with one will, uh, with one essence. The persons of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit mutually indwelling each other and loving each other. And again, again, the Bible promises that God cannot change. And you can't actually think of a bigger change than the Father to be uh, ruptured uh, or split from the Son. So that's not going on either. And finally, it's not the case that Jesus would. He merely felt like uh, he merely felt forsaken by God, though, in fact, he wasn't. He was mistaken. Again, that would make the Lord Jesus Christ wrong in some of the things that he said. But again, the Lord Jesus Christ is the word of God. Uh, He is the truth of God. So that can't be right either. So God didn't stop uh, loving Jesus on the cross. The Trinity was not split or divided. And Jesus wasn't mistaken about being forsaken. So a lot of knots there. Can we say anything a bit more positive about what did actually happen? I think two things will help us. Firstly, uh, Jesus was forsaken by God according to his human nature. So you've got to remember who Jesus is. He's the God-man. He's, he's truly God and truly man. And sometimes the God-man experiences things in his human nature. In fact, we say most of the time when we see Jesus, he's experiencing things according to his human nature. So we see Jesus Jesus get hungry and he's hungry as a man because uh, God, as God, doesn't eat food. He's not a physical being. He's spirit. God doesn't get hungry. When Jesus was thirsty, again, he was thirsty as a man. Uh, Because God can't get thirsty. In fact, God doesn't drink in that respect. And again, when Jesus gets tired, he gets tired as a man, partly because it's one of the great promises of God that God never sleeps. That's a great relief to us uh, as Christians that we can sleep because God doesn't. Although the Lord Jesus Christ, as the God man, according to his human nature, as a man, uh, did uh, sleep, it was part of his human experience. And that's what we see in Jesus being forsaken. He is forsaken as a man, according to his human nature, suffering as a man. Uh, secondly, uh, being forsaken by God. Again, this is sort of the most uh, sort of positive thing I want to say in the sense of what is actually going on here. And we can put it like this that God's face was hidden from Jesus. God's face was hidden from Jesus. Now, again, you might say, OK, you've, you've changed forsaken language to haste, face hidden language. Again, what, what does that mean? Well, again, it's a Bible phrase, God's face being hidden from Jesus. And sometimes it's used as the opposite. Or, or God's face shining is sometimes used as the opposite. Um as being forsaken by God. So we've already heard this morning, haven't we, the blessing of God. We're going to say it again at the end of the service, just to really ram the point home. Um, but after uh, Brenda was baptised, Johnty pronounced God's blessing. And this is what he said. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So says that language, Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give, him, uh, and give you peace. So to have God's face shine upon you is a word picture of blessing, to experience God's peace, to know God's joy and approval and to know relational intimacy with God. And to be forsaken is the opposite of that blessing. So again, listen to another Old, uh, uh, Old Testament, uh, not, not blessing this time, but curse. So Deuteronomy chapter 31. Listen to this. My anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. So see that forsaking language is, is parallel to God hiding his face from his people, which is an absence of his blessing and a presence of his wrath and anger and his curse. God loves to bless his people. He loves to give them comfort and joy and for them to know his presence and his peace. And actually, God loves his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even particularly as he is dying on the cross uh, for his people, doing the will of his father. And yet as Jesus is crucified, while still being loved by God, Jesus is forsaken by God. In the place of blessing, he is cursed. In the place of joy, he experiences misery. In the place of peace, he experiences terror. In the place of uh, approval, he experiences wrath. On the cross, Jesus willingly experienced God's divine, uh, just wrath for my sin and for your sin. Now, children, if you are struggling to follow... You are not on your own here. This is, this is difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand. And maybe in one respect, we just need to know that on the cross, what Jesus experienced was a horrible, horrible death, experiencing uh, the wrath of God, the worst experience that it's possible for a human being ever to experience. He was forsaken, and he was forsaken for us. He was forsaken for me, and he was forsaken for you because of our sin. And he did that because he loves us. So firstly, on the cross, Jesus uh, gets forsaken. The second thing that Jesus gets on the cross is Jesus gets death. Now, as we uh, move on uh, to verse 50, that's what we read. Uh, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There's a sense of almost deliberate nature. It's almost like he chose to die at that point. And there's real emphasis that Jesus, yes, he experiences forsa- being forsaken by God in those three hours on the cross, but that it ends in his death. That's, it, it really does end in death. In other words, Jesus pays the price in full. He didn't get punished for some of our sin. He didn't get partly uh, punished for all of our sins. He was fully punished for all of our sins. It's not punished for some of our sin, not partly punished for all of our sin, but fully punished for all of our sin. He paid for all of our sin through his death. Now, I guess many of us uh, just these days just dream of owning our own property, don't we, with house prices astronomical, with mortgage rates up, and you go to a, um, a broker and you say, well, let's try and do something over 35 years. I mean, you can even think of that 35 years away. Uh, if you're lucky enough to get one, uh, get a property. You're still not thinking it's yours. You pay off a mortgage for years after years after years, to ten years. Oh, how much have I paid off? Nothing. You've barely made any inroads. And for years after years after years, you're paying the debt uh, that you owe. But one day, and I can only imagine this day, one day, the final payment uh, of a mortgage uh, will be paid, uh, if you had one. And at that point, I guess there'll be this huge relief. It's finally mine. It's finally mine. I've paid it all. The full price has been paid. And I think that's sort of what's going on. That's why Matthew includes this really clear explanation that, yes, Jesus was forsaken and he died. It's finally all done. Why why death? Because the wages of sin are death. That is the full payment uh, of our sin. Uh, Death. Uh, That's where it ends up. The, The wages of sin are death. There's more to be said than just physical death, but that is uh, that, that is a substantial part of it. And in Jesus dying on the cross, it's like, yep, it is now being paid in full. Everything has been done. No more is required. No extra effort by anyone else is needed for sins to be paid. Jesus' final breath, his spirit that he gives up, is his last and final payment. And it's his last and final payment for us. He's paid it in full. He's paid for your sin in full, 100%. He's paid for my sin in full, 100%. So, sum up so far. We've seen what Jesus gets. Jesus gets forsaken, and Jesus gets death. Well, so what? So what? Well, let's see what uh, we get now. And as we move on to the next paragraph in our reading, uh, we're shown exactly what happens. And those two verses that start at verse 51... And behold, and behold. In other words, saying, and look what happens. So what? I'm going to show you so what. That's what Matthew's saying. And behold, it's like he's saying, you know, you'll never believe what happened next. It's sort of clickbait thing. And you can guarantee, if you read that on the internet, you'll never believe what happens next. It's, you probably could believe it. It's a total waste of your time. But here, you, well, you might better believe it, but it is definitely worth clicking onto. It is definitely worth taking your time and seeing what Matthew's going to say. And behold, Jesus. Uh, gets forsaken we get welcome it's like the reflection in the mirror the opposite but the same jesus gets forsaken we get welcome and behold the curtain temple was torn in two from top to bottom now the curtain temple uh, was a barrier uh, that basically said uh, you're not welcome or uh, no entry you can't come here even around the farish we'll see various uh, doors with uh, locks on or, or doors that maybe don't have locks on but you know as a guest we really shouldn't be going in there uh, that is what the curtain temple was not welcome you shouldn't be uh, in this place it was a no entrance barrier from god of god's people to be in god's presence and it was a picture of what happened in the garden of eden the garden of eden where adam and eve were in god's presence where he dwelt amongst them in the cool of the day and because of their sin they got banished there's a children's book that talks about the, the garden and the, and, the, and the curtain and the cross. And they've got a strap line, and it says, It's because of your sin, you can't come in. That's what the curtain's doing there. Because of your sin, you can't come in. And the only way to get back through to God's presence was through sacrifice. We see all that changes with Jesus' death on the cross because Jesus' death on the cross is that sacrifice. And once Jesus is forsaken, and once Jesus dies, then the curtain temple is torn in two, and the uh, no entrance marker, the not welcome sign, is thrown away, and we get welcome. Jesus gets forsaken, we get welcome. We get welcome into God's presence because there's no longer any barrier, nothing keeping us away from God's presence. Why? The curtain temple has been torn. Notice from top to bottom, it's God's initiative to us. Again, that's how John to describe Brenda's baptism, wasn't it? It was a sign from God. It's God's work. Uh, God uh, that does away with the curtain. It's his initiative. And it's and he says, You're welcome. You're welcome to come to me. That is the message of the cross. I wonder if you've ever been on a plane. Adults, I wonder if you've ever been on a plane. We'd not been on a plane for ages until a few weeks ago. And then we had the privilege of flying and I was really looking forward to it. Um, But I basically forgot actually how difficult flying was. I'd never flown at half turn before. um, And basically it was a total nightmare. Um, It was entirely my fault. We nearly missed the flight. Um, But basically I hadn't remembered how difficult it was to actually get on the plane. Um, You might think, well, well, you're some sort of idiot. Bear with me. Let let me me tell you what happened. Um, I've forgotten how many barriers. You start off, you get your parking. You can't park at the airport. You've got to park in a field miles away. Uh, And then you get a bus that comes along to pick you up. Although in our case, the bus didn't come. And then when it did come, we weren't allowed in because there were too many people already on the bus. And then you do get to the airport, um, but it's like they don't want to let you on the flight. (laughs) Uh, so you can't come in, your baggage is too heavy. You can't come in, your body hasn't been scanned. You can't come in because your toothpaste isn't in a clear bag. We haven't checked your passports. There's barrier again and again and again and again. There is so much to do to get on the plane, even on the day you're flying. And I have a tendency to sometimes subconsciously think that coming into God's presence or approaching my father is a little bit like catching the plane, in that there's so much to do, so many conditions to fulfill. Really hard work, and at the end of the day, not really welcomed. Well, how wrong I am. How wrong I am. And if you think like that, how wrong you are. If we just kept the analogy of catching a plane, it would be much more akin to a a chauffeur-driven limousine coming to your house in the morning. And just not just taking you to the airport, taking you through a side gate, taking you right onto the runway at the bottom of the steps with the captain welcoming, saying, it's great to have you get on board. Uh, Why is approaching God more like that? Because all the barriers have been taken away. The curtain has been taken away because Jesus was forsaken. But because Jesus was forsaken, It means that we can be welcomed. That is the message of the cross. Welcome. That's why Jesus says, Come to me. He said, Come, the words come, come to me. That's what he says to us. That's why he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. I never say to you, Oh, you've got too much baggage. I'm sorry. I will never say you're the wrong sort of person, your pastor is the wrong sort of person. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that because he was forsaken. So we will never, ever be cast away, no matter what our circumstances. We're so inclined, aren't we, to think we need to play our part, big or small. When we sin, I think we think, perhaps I just need a time out before I can approach God. I don't know what your besetting sin is. I don't know what your sin is that you'd actually ashamed to admit to the person next to you. But what is that sin? I guess when we do that sin, we think, "Ah." I just can't approach God. I need some time out. I need a bit of time to heal. She says, no, come to me. Perhaps you need a bit of period of not sinning of that specific sin. I I really, maybe I need to not do that for a, a week or a day or a month. Then I'll approach God again. Perhaps it's much more serious than that, though. Perhaps you're so ashamed of what you've done. Actually, it's not just about not doing something. Actually, I need to take punishment upon myself. It brought to my attention this week. I was on the NHS website reading the reasons why people self-harm. And, of course, it's very complicated, and there are many reasons why people do it. But one reason is that people want to punish themselves. Uh, Maybe that's what's required. Some people do that in secret. There are other, actually, very, very sadly, Christians' versions of this around the world, massively distorted gospel where people literally uh, whip themselves to make themselves acceptable to God. And it's so sad seeing a Christian of all people doing that. It's No, you don't need to do that. Jesus says, no, no, I've done it all. I was forsaken at the cross. So there's nothing left to do. It's all been done. The mortgage has been fully paid. The temple curtain is open. Jesus says, I've been forsaken. I died for you. Now you are welcome as you are. It's Father's Day today. Um, and so let me tell you a bit about my dad. I'm actually going to embarrass my dad. I don't think he'd... he'd be quite proud about this. So, um, He's a big fan of the film Notting Hill. And uh, I realise most of you are probably born after this film was out. But if you're my generation, it's... Um, and the reason I don't want to embarrass my dad because I share this embarrassment. I actually really like Notting Hill. It's one of the few rom-coms that I like. And I know I've got half the room now and the other half has just faded out. But anyway we uh, need to know about the film, it's Julie Roberts, Hugh Grant and uh, Julie Roberts is this uh, uh, actress, very famous actress but she's in a lot of trouble and Hugh Grant's uh, a nobody and she turns up at his door one day, she's not seen him for ages and she says to him, well, he's sort of looking slightly confused of why she's here, he's glad she's here but she's, he's not sure why she's here and she says to him, I'm sorry I didn't know where else to go to which he replies, This is the place. This is the place. She's in a total mess. He says, This is the place. And uh, the reason I say this on Father's Day is because sometimes uh, when we go home and my parents conceal us, total mess, it's an awful journey. We're knackered. And maybe, you know, quite close to my parents, maybe they know some of the bigger issues in our lives. My dad will say, a bit cheesy, I know, but he says, This is the place. This is the place. Now, there are a million things different about what's going on in that film and our welcome with God. But one thing is similar. One thing is similar. When we are in a total mess, maybe it is entirely down to our own doing. It's as if God says to us, this is the place. You are welcome. You are welcome. Jesus says, come to me. This is the place, no matter what. Why? Because I was forsaken for you. You can now approach God through the Lord Jesus Christ at any time, in any circumstances. Jesus was forsaken so that we will never be. Jesus gets forsaken, we get welcome. And finally, and most briefly, Jesus gets death so that we get life. There's actually two tearings in this passage. You can't see it from the way it's written here you get the tearing of the temple curtain, but you get also, uh, again, at the end of verse 51, the tearing of the rocks. It says the rocks were split, but it's the same thing. The tearing uh, of the rocks. Um, and we get the tearing of the rocks, and then we see what happens to the tombs. The tombs uh, are split. The rocks are torn or split, and it leads to the tombs being opened. Now, we've seen the purpose of the curtain in the temple. What is it to do? It's to keep... Uh, sinful people away from a holy God. Now, what is the purpose of the tomb? A purpose of a tomb is to keep the dead away from the living, isn't it? That's what we do. I mean, again, there's more to it than that, but that is one of the functions of a tomb, is to keep the dead away from the living. Uh, But now, as Jesus dies and enters death, the earth shakes and the tombs open. It's like as Jesus goes into death, he smashes uh, the gates of death open. And as he goes in, people can come out. And that's exactly what we see in verse 52. Perhaps you found it the most strange um, verse of the reading. Verse 52 The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, this is an event that's only recorded in Matthew's Gospel. And we don't know who these holy people are. We can sort of guess. We're not really sure who they are or where they went after their resurrection. So were they uh, raised up into heaven uh, like uh, Elijah? Or uh, did they probably uh, die again a a few days later, uh, like we probably imagine Lazarus does when he's raised by Jesus? All we know is that's true. Uh, We know that it's in the Scriptures and I think it's recorded here. It's interesting that Jesus records the resurrection here and not after. Sorry, Matthew calls the resurrection of um, the holy people on his death rather than later on in his resurrection. Because I think what he's trying to show is, again, this sort is of the mirror reflection of his death and our life, our resurrection. Jesus gets death and we get life. And it's a picture of what of the future of sinners who are trusting in jesus you see one day we too will go into a holy city interesting that matthew's that language holy city that's the language of, rever- of revelation a new creation we will one day go into the holy city uh, it's all in uh, revelation 21 22 in fact it's throughout revelation but death will be defeated we'll get new bodies and then as we uh, rise to life again there we will see our savior face to face and be, be in his presence well on the cross jesus gets forsaken so that we get welcome on the cross jesus gets death so that we get life and just finally uh, one of the most remarkable things we see who benefits from this as if to prove that uh, jesus has done it all uh, the most surprising people uh, take notice see that in verse 54 uh, those who were mocking him those who actually killed him. See what they say at the end of verse 54. Truly, this was the Son of God. God's welcome through Jesus is open to all. It's open at all times, and it's open no matter what you've done if you come to God through Jesus. It's open to big sinners. It's open to persistent sinners. And it means that we can approach God uh, always, with great confidence it's all been done and now there is just welcome that is what a christian is someone who's been welcomed into the presence of god through the death of the lord jesus christ and that is why jesus can say whoever comes to me i will never cast away and that is why it's my prayer that all of us have renewed confidence and that turns into a habit of approaching God at all times, in the darkest times of our lives, times when we feel most unworthy, we look to Jesus' death on the cross and realise that we are welcome. Let's pray that that would be true for us.